So uh, let's begin this morning with a scripture lesson reading from the New Testament from Paul's letter to the Ephesians from his fifth chapter where Paul is actually giving particular instructions to husbands uh, in relationship to their wives. So listen to God's word. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it, just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. Amen. Well, this morning I'm continuing a series of messages on the theme, God's Design for Marriage. And in addressing this topic, I'm certainly not not unaware of the fact that there are many singles here in this congregation, uh, either by choice or by circumstance. Uh, I hope to deal with uh, singleness in an upcoming sermon. So you who are single out there, you know, your time will come. Uh, And I'm sure that you'll understand that I can't say everything about marriage and and singleness uh, in any one 20-minute sermon. So I have to space things out a little bit. There's so much to say and actually so little time. But whether we are married or single, we all have a stake in the institution of marriage, for it impacts us all one way or the other. Last week we said that marriage is God's idea, that according to his design, marriage is between a man and a woman who enter into a profound, permanent covenant of faithfulness between and become one flesh, body, soul, and spirit, a total commitment involving total life union. This design, grounded in the very order of creation, was affirmed by Jesus himself, who quotes Genesis, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Now it's one thing to know God's definition and design for marriage. It's another thing to live it. More than ever, this world needs couples who model what true marriage is meant to be according to God's design. The beauty and joy of the one flesh reality, that is marriage, ought to shine forth for all to see. Strong marriages make for happy families and for healthy societies. So I want to begin this morning by asking the question, what makes for a great marriage? And if we went around this room, uh, no doubt you would all have ideas about what it is that makes marriage successful. We get some pretty good tips, actually, for our own relationships. Uh, And I know that there are some great, wonderful marriages represented here in this very room. Studies of married couples who have been together at least two decades have found that there there are some ideal characteristics that make for successful marriage. And here they are. Lifetime commitment to marriage, 
loyalty to spouse, respect for spouse as friend, strong moral values, commitment to sexual fidelity, desire to please and support spouse, good companionship, willingness to forgive and be forgiven. I don't suppose any of those things are surprising to you. But add to this list that I put now at the top, an important ingredient also from the studies of couples is faith and spiritual commitment. Now, you would expect the pastor to emphasize this, wouldn't you? Because it's the pastor who's speaking, and we are in church. But actually, this is a crucial ingredient in a great marriage. The greatest marriages are those that are built upon a firm spiritual foundation where both husband and wife individually and together as a couple are engaged in a spiritual quest for life's meaning and purpose in life and who share a common faith in God as the one who meets their deepest longings. Internally, we human beings are a bundle of longings, of desires. On February 12, 1944, 13-year-old Anne Frank wrote the following words in her now famous diary. Today the sun is shining, the sky is deep blue, there's a lovely breeze, and I am longing, so longing for everything to talk, for freedom, for friends, to be alone. And I do so long to cry. I feel as if I'm going to burst, and I know that it would get better with crying, but I can't. I'm restless. I go from room to room, breathe through the crack of a closed window, feel my heart beating as if it is saying, can't you satisfy my longing at last? I believe that it is spring within me. I feel that spring is awakening. I, I feel it in my whole body and soul. It, it's an effort to behave normally. I feel utterly confused. I don't know what to read, what to write, what to do. I only know that I am longing. There is at the very center of our being a tension, an ache, a burning in the heart that is deep and insatiable. More often than not, that longing isn't distinct. It doesn't seem clear. It doesn't have a name. We only know that we are restless, aching deep within our soul. We're looking for a deep spiritual connection with ultimate reality. And in the end, it has to do with our search for God. It's a longing to connect with the one who made us. There's an emptiness in our hearts that only God can satisfy. As St. Augustine put it, Thou hast made us for thyself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in thee. The psalmist expresses his longings to connect with reality, to connect with God in Psalm 42. 
As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I go and meet with God? My tears have been my food day and night, while men say to me all day long, Where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I used to go with the multitude, leading the procession to the house of God with shouts of joy and thanksgiving among the festive throng. Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. Again, the psalmist recognizes that God is the one who fills his inner emptiness. He will fulfill his deepest longings. It is God who is the source of meaning and purpose and hope in his life. Now, what does all this have to do with a great marriage? Well, it's this. If God is at the center of your life, and he is the one who fulfills your deepest longings. You won't go to someone else or to something else to fulfill those longings. You won't expect your marriage to quench, to quench your soul thirst. You won't expect your partner to make you happy and to fulfill you. You won't expect your spouse to give you what only God can give. Many marriages today are undermined by uh, faulty expectations for marriage. These faulty expectations are fed by the old fairy tale idea that there is one special person out there, your soulmate, who was meant just for you. And once you find this person, then that person will make you complete and whole and you'll live happily ever after. The problem is, should difficulties come, should there be problems in the marriage, disillusionment rapidly sets in, and then you begin to think, well, gee, maybe I didn't marry my soulmate after all. If only I had married so-and-so, then it would be easier. Then it wouldn't be so hard. Everything would be different. And I don't know, I kind of think it's silly that of all billions of people on earth, that there's only one person out there who is just right for you. And yet you go online and you find all kinds of advice about how to locate your perfect soulmate. To which I say, good luck. There's a what's-in-it-for-me mentality plaguing many marriages today. We expect our partner to fulfill us, to make us happy. And then if we're not feeling fulfilled or happy, then it's just too easy to give up and look for somebody else who can play that role. And when you think about it, that's a crushing burden to lay on your partner, to make you happy. Now, you movie buffs may remember the movie Jerry Maguire. Uh, Jerry's played by, by uh, Tom Cruise, and his love interest is played by, I said it wrong at the first service, I, I thought it was Kelly Preston, but it was actually Renee Zellweger. Uh, and you remember that cheesy line? To me, it's cheesy, okay? <laughs> to me, it's, 
where, where, where Jerry looks at his love interest and says, you complete me. You complete me. As though it's somehow her job to make him complete or to make him whole. Is that the job of our partner? Really? Those who, who believe that, that the other person should make you complete and whole, make themselves dependent upon their partner in an unhealthy way. Could it be that one's personal completeness and wholeness that we long for doesn't come from any human being, not even our spouse, not even from marrying our soulmate, but is the byproduct of a growing relationship with God? What if it isn't so much about finding the right person as being the right person? And the way to being the right person is to be rightly connected to God so that your spirit is being fed by his spirit. Pulitzer Prize-winning author and uh, cultural anthropologist Ernest Becker pointed out how at one time we expected marriage and family to provide love, support, and security. But for meaning in life, hope for the future, moral compass, and self-identity, we look to God and to the afterlife. Today, however, our, our culture has taught us to believe that no one can be sure of those things, not even that they exist. Therefore, Becker argues, something has to fill the gap. And often that something is romantic love. We, love, we look to love and romance, sex, to give us what we used to get from faith in God. We look to our marriage partner. And that's totally unfair because no one can make us complete and whole for the simple reason that they're not God. Our New Testament scripture lesson this morning is from Paul's letter to the Ephesians. It's chapter 5. And here the Apostle Paul expresses a very high view of marriage. He likens the marriage between a man and a woman to that of the union between the Lord and his church. Now listen again as Paul addresses husbands in particular, but this has implications for the entire marriage relationship. I think it's worthwhile reading again. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and he gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one has ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it, just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery. But I'm talking about Christ and the church. Now, there's a whole lot in this passage that I could unpack here, but I can't. But the gist is this. For the Apostle Paul, marriage is not about personal fulfillment or happiness or sex or romance, 
But marriage, above all, is meant to be a reflection on the human level of our ultimate love relationship and union with the Lord. It's interesting that as Paul discusses marriage between a man and a woman, uppermost in Paul's mind is the union between Christ and his church, his union with us as members of that church. In other words, it's the spiritual bond that is ultimate for us. It's our union with Christ that is our real marriage our hearts are made for. And if we find our fulfillment in God through a love relationship with him, then we are free to love others as Christ has loved us. Then we can give ourselves over to radical self-giving. And healthy marriages result. What's central here is in marriage is our union with the Lord. Our marriage with our spouse is what you might use the word penultimate. It's not ultimate. It's union with the Lord. Tim Keller puts it this way when discussing this passage in, in, uh, in Ephesians. He says, without a deeply fulfilling love relationship with Christ now and hope in a perfect love relationship with him in the future, Married Christians will put too much pressure on their marriage to fulfill them, and that will always create pathology in their lives. The greatest marriages are those in which each partner is taking responsibility for their own spiritual life. They're growing spiritually in union with God, for God alone is able to feed their souls in a way that is healthy and appropriate and then that, once that union is established or growing in him, that frees you up to love our spouse in ways that are truly life-giving and life-enhancing, marriage-enhancing, ways that reflect Christ's love for his church. So that instead of, of looking for our spouse to make us happy, we turn our attention to making them happy, serving them and helping them to become all that God intended for them to be. So that when God is at the center of marriage, the bond between a couple is strengthened and intimacy grows. I like to think of marriage as a triangle in which God is at the top and you have the man and the woman in marriage at the bottom corners, right? And as each grows towards God, they inevitably grow towards one another and they experience the deepest kind of intimacy, beautiful intimacy, the spiritual oneness that is meant to be experienced in true marriage, according to God's design. Again, that bond is beautiful. It's amazing. One of the great love stories of modern times involved a couple who in the beginning could have been, couldn't have been actually a more unlikely pair. He was a stodgy old Oxford professor, never married, a Christian apologist and author of best-selling books for children. And she was a brash American, former communist, convert from Judaism, and was much younger, divorced with two sons, an award-winning poet. And after first meeting during her visit to England in 1952, C.S. Lewis and Joy Davidman carried on a relationship by mail. And that correspondence was generally academic or spiritual in nature. Joy Davidman was really taken with Lewis's works and was always commenting on them and asking questions of him. 
Both of them had very fine minds and uh, their intellectual discussions, many of which centered on Christ and Christianity, deepened their respect for one another. And when Joy moved to England with her two young boys, their relationship grew further, made possible by close proximity. And then when her departure from England was imminent because of a lack of funds and her visitor's visa was expiring, C.S. Lewis, to the complete shock of his friends, decided to marry Joy. Ostensibly, C.S. Lewis was doing her a favor because by marrying Joy, she could stay in England, and he knew that that is what she desperately wanted. So the marriage was formalized in a courthouse office. It was a civil ceremony. And, uh, and here they, they had the piece of paper that says they were married. And, and uh, for a little while, they didn't even live with each other. And yet, deep down inside, Lewis really did love joy. Early in their marriage, Joy discovered she had cancer and it was irreversible. And Lewis, always used to being in control, had a meltdown. But in the course of all this, he realized just how deep his love for joy really was. And the two carried on this, this wonderful love relationship in spite of her illness. And they uh, sought and received the blessing of the church on their marriage. And the two prayed together and they looked to God for strength and consolation. And together they shared life's little joys. And I love how, how C.S. Lewis described their relationship. In his words, he says, We feasted on love. Every mode of it, solemn and merry, romantic and realistic, sometimes as dramatic as a thunderstorm, sometimes comfortable and unemphatic as putting on your soft slippers. She was my pupil and my teacher, my subject and my sovereign, my trusty comrade, friend, shipmate, fellow soldier, my mistress, but at the same time all that any man friend has ever been to me. We feasted on love. Joy received the best medical treatment available, and then Lewis took her home where he tenderly cared for her. And she enjoyed a remission, but that was short-lived. Uh, in her last days near death, actually the very day of her death, Joy told him, you have made me happy. And then a little while after, I'm at peace with God. And then Joy died at 10.15 that evening in 1960. And Lewis later recalled, she smiled, but not at me. I tell this story because it's such a powerful illustration of the beauty and depth of spiritual oneness present in a marriage that is centered in God. And when God is at the center of the relationship, God brings a smiling peace to our restless hearts, and true love abounds, true self-giving love. Well, 
you may know the story. The story was told in the movie Shadowlands. Uh, that story was brought to the stage, and uh, C.S. Lewis wrote a book about his spiritual struggles and his profound grief in his book, A Grief Observed. And you know, C.S. Lewis is most famous for uh, his children's books, you know, The Lion of the Witch in the Wardrobe, uh, The Chronicles of Narnia. But I just wonder if maybe the greatest story, the best story, was the story he actually lived in terms of his marriage, his love relationship with uh, Joy Davidman, because it was a thing of beauty. The depth of that bond, when there is a spiritual oneness, the two become one flesh in God. Amazing love. Amazing intimacy. Now I want to close by speaking pastorally to those of you who have a spouse that does not share your faith or your spiritual commitment. And I know you may wish it were otherwise. But know that God works in people in different ways, and your spouse may yet come around to the faith. They may be closer to the kingdom than you think. God has his own timing with the people in our lives. And your role is simply to show the love of Jesus to your spouse, to your partner. Encourage gently, but don't push. Invite, but don't force. Be patient and pray. And be the best husband or the best wife you can possibly be. The Spirit of God is at work in you and through you and is at work in your family. In the end, it is the Spirit of God who turns hearts and minds around. It's not up to you. Trust Him. In the meantime, keep working on your own spiritual life. Find your spiritual nourishment in God, and that will surely enhance your marriage. May God bless the marriages that are represented here, and may our spirits be united by a greater spirit, the spirit of Jesus Christ, who alone can satisfy our deepest longings. Thou hast made us for thyself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in thee. Amen.